So my last cross-country flight happened to be from Fitchburg to Nantucket, over to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and back to Fitchburg. I had had a pretty interesting flight, as you heard, on the last cross-country. And so I decided that this one hopefully would be a little better. And so I took off on my plane and I headed over to Nantucket. What a beautiful sight that was. I had never been to Nantucket. Checked me in on my log and uh, I was off to Bridgeport. Flew across the water, broad daylight, beautiful day, just like today. It was absolutely gorgeous and I flew over to Bridgeport, had a great flight. I was feeling pretty good. Things were going okay. This was my last flight cross-country before I could take my exam to get my pilot's license. And I was feeling pretty confident. And I had one leg to go. From Bridgeport back to Fitchburg. So I took off. And I'm heading towards Worcester. And as I'm heading towards Worcester, all of a sudden, the squall of snow out of literally nowhere, I swear the devil was trying to kill me. <laughs> literally, the whole sky filled with snow. I was in a blizzard facing my windshield, and I looked down, I looked up, I looked sideways, and I could not see a thing. And let me tell you folks, my heart was a pounding because for the first time, night flying, at least I had perspective. I saw some lights over there and I had perspective. This time I had no perspective, zero. And as I remembered that event, the last flight, I remember Charlie, Look at your instrument and the two and a half hours under the hood, the flight instructor kept saying, Charlie, do not depend on your own feelings. <coughs> your feelings will always deceive you. You will feel like you have to go a certain way, but it's the wrong way. There's only one way to know, and that's look at this horizon vehicle uh, uh, instrument. I did, for a moment, I caught my breath. I said, oh, what am I gonna do? First thing I did is I called Worcester, and I said, Worcester, I'm in trouble. I told them who I was, just like I did at Bradley or Albany, and they were so good. They said, Mr. Case, look at your instruments and listen to our instructions. Where had I heard that before? <laughs> Let me tell you. When I am flying there, and it was literally five minutes, I said, where did this snow come from? I didn't see it on the radar. I checked with the weather before I left. Everything was fine. He says, we know. We do not know either. Okay. I got through there, and I landed. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I suddenly realized I had forgotten this. I called Worcester first, and then I called the Lord later. And I said to myself, as I'm thinking, as I'm preparing, why didn't I call the Lord first? I didn't. Faith is the substance of things not seen. I could not see a thing. But I had faith in my instrument. And I remember that after I prayed, after I called Worcester, I remember God saying to me, Charlie, fear not, for I will be your pilot. I had forgotten that. I had absolutely forgotten that phrase in my mind until I was preparing for this sermon. It, it really humbled me to remember that that is what God had said to me. There is a quote here I'd like to read to you. It is the glory of our God to give. Jesus says, I do nothing of myself. The Father has sent me, I live by the Father, I seek not my own glory, but the glory of Him that sent me. In His heavenly ministry for all, the Father's love flows out to all, and through Jesus, 
returns as a tide of love to Him. Through Christ, the circle of benevolence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, which is the law of life. So if you want to diagram it, you can see it right there. God gives to Jesus who gives to us, and as we fall in love with Him, we give back to Jesus who gives it back to God. It's this cycle. So we could diagram it this way. God is love. God originates love. God is faithful. God originates faith. And loving and all, He treats all with faith and gives, gives all faith. This is the first half of that circle. God's creative initiative is the faith of Jesus. Big difference. Jesus has faith in us. He had faith in the woman at the well. He had faith in Zacchaeus. They didn't have faith in themselves, but Jesus had faith in them. We have no involvement in that. And yet, you and I are the great recipients of this unmerited favor. And then we have this other side. The other half of God's plan is His faith in us returns, so we give it through Jesus back to God. And remember, it says that um, uh, we love because God first loved us, right? We can't love without God. God has faith in us, and so in faith we return it back to Him. And this is called the faith in Jesus. This completes the circle, and this morning I would like to talk about faith in Jesus. Now there's a, a very famous passage that we all know. It's in the um, uh, Revelation 14, 6 and 7, the first angel of the three angels' messages. And we've always thought about it as judgment, or watch out for Babylon, or look out or beware for the beast. Today, I would like to look at this passage, if you would with me, to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Revelation 14, 6 and 7, if you don't have your Bible, it's on the screen. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. There are three things in this. We have fear. Fear God. The fear as we know it in Scripture is something of an awe, a wonder, a respect that we have in God. It says glory. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. And finally, worship. Who, all of, who are all these? Fear God, uh, give glory to Him, worship Him. So either we're going to be worshiping ourselves, or we're going to be worshiping God, or someone else, or something. We're either going to be worshiping God, or ourselves, which is through someone or something. This, my friends, is what I call and what we call warning against self-worship. This is an invitation to a deeper faith instead of our own works. This is none other than salvation by faith or what we have come to know as righteousness by faith. And an inspired writer wrote this definition of righteousness by faith. It is laying the glory of mankind in the dust and God doing for mankind that which they cannot do for themselves. The root word for faith in Scripture at its very core literally means trust. Trust goes well beyond belief for the Bible says that even the devil believes. So the next question is who do we trust? Well, Aren't the people you trust usually the people you know? The people we trust are the people that we know the best. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says, I know whom I have believed or trusted. So therefore, knowing Jesus is 
trusting Jesus, which is where faith comes from. You and I, in order to have genuine faith, there are two things that need to happen. First of all, we need to have someone who is trustworthy. Can you have faith in a spouse who cheats on you? Someone has to be trustworthy. So in order to have faith in that person, you have to have someone who is trustworthy. And second of all, you need to get to know that person. So you have to have trust and you have to have knowledge of that person. So when this occurs, trust happens automatically. Therefore, you can condense the theology of faith in the following manner. You don't work at it. You don't work up to it. You don't try to make yourself believe in it or something. You get to know the person whom you trust. And by getting to know Jesus, as you get better acquainted with Him, faith will come spontaneously. You don't work on your faith. It just happens automatically. Now, how do you get to know someone? How, did, uh, how does anyone get to know someone? Well, this is how the process works. We talk with them, which is like prayer. We listen to them, which is like Bible, reading the Bible. And then we do mutual things together, which is really doing service or doing blessing other people on behalf of God. When we do these three things in our Christian walk, genuine, spontaneous, and automatic faith is the byproduct of that relationship. I don't care who you're with, whether it's with someone or with God, when you have that kind of relationship, faith in that person happens automatically. Galatians 5.22 tells us that faith itself is a fruit, which means it is not the fruit of a person ginning it up inside of them. It is coming from God outside of ourselves. Ephesians 2 says that by grace we have been saved through faith, which is a gift from God. We do not possess faith ourselves. Faith, except even a little bit that God gives us, is a gift. So we have this gift from God, and when we get to know Him, our relationship with Him happens effortlessly and unexpectedly. But Charlie, wait a minute. What about 2 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12? It says, Fight the good fight of faith. Doesn't fight take an effort? Well, what this doesn't mean is that I must try to make myself believe something, but rather it means that the effort becomes making a choice, getting to know God and His Son Jesus. God never forces us to love Him. He merely draws us to Himself with His love. Here is what I'm discovering in my own faith journey with Jesus. Faith means Charlie trusting God for everything, no matter what happens to Charlie in the process. I can tell you that in the last 10 months, that has been a difficult thing for me, for many reasons which I won't get into. But the 23rd Psalms has been a really wonderful uh, reminder to me that even when Charlie walks through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Psalms 34, and friends, if you're discouraged, if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling empty, if you're feeling tired, if you're feeling lonely, if you're feeling whatever it is that you're feeling, Psalms 34, I beg you, I encourage you to go and read it and read it and reread it. It is so reassuring. Just two verses here. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord rescues them from all. Now, I want to turn my attention to righteousness because this whole topic that the pastor asked me to talk on was faith and righteousness. No easy task, pastor. Thank you very much. So Romans 9, 30 to 33, it says, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, 
and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The counterintuitive part here is that Paul is contrasting two people or two experiences. He says that Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, and yet they attained to it. The Jews, however, pursued righteousness, and yet they didn't attain to it. It's as if someone was applying themselves by pursuing that they don't get it, and yet others who don't even pursue it are getting, ending up getting it. They are the ones trying the hardest to achieve it. Shouldn't God give them righteousness? Don't they deserve an A plus for all their effort? But no, Paul says they're not righteous. So then the Gentiles come along and they aren't even trying to pursue righteousness. How can God regard them as righteous when they aren't even putting forth any effort? This all, to me, seems counterintuitive. Shouldn't the prize go to the ones who are actually running the race? So in verse 30, it isn't any kind of righteousness. It is called righteousness by faith. This is a special quality of righteousness. So in verse 31, Paul observes that the Jews didn't attain this. And then verse 32 says, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but actually by the works of the law. And then in verse 33, he says, and therefore they stumbled on that stone. If they had sought, if they had embraced Jesus, they would have found in him everything necessary for the realization of their experience of righteousness by faith. But no, they rejected Jesus, who is the only source of righteousness, and they rejected his righteousness, opting for their own performance and manufacturing their own righteousness. Paul's concern here is that the spiritual nature of the relationship, the product spiritual dynamic, the productive spiritual dynamic is faith. The counterproductive spiritual dynamic here is what Paul calls the work of the law. Friends, if you work at just keeping the law, just keeping a set of rules, all you're going to end up with is guilt and shame and a lot of sinning. The law has its place, yet it's not merely a list of rules that we assess them and then try to keep them on our own strength. The point of the law, get this, the point of the law is that Jesus is Savior. That's the whole purpose of the law. Through the proper relationship with Jesus, the law is restored to its original purpose, which is to point out our sin and then point us to the Savior. It's not an either-or, because the law and Jesus can't not be separated. We need to preach the law for all it's worth and all that the law stands for. What it says and what it communicates to us is that, Charlie, you're a sinner. That's what the law tells me. Then the law says to me, go and look to Jesus because he is the only one who can save you from what I just pointed out of your sin. Sin leads to transgression of the law, but I'm going to expound on that just a little bit later, so hang in with me. I will tell you right now that if you are keeping a set of rules without a relationship, you are going to end up in rebellion. That's true of any relationship humanly. If you just love someone because and you have no relationship, eventually that'll just fall apart. If you have a relationship with God that is primarily focused on the law, you will produce a cycle of defeat in your life. The pivotal factor depends upon your connection with Jesus. You need to live in the right relational environment of His love, His grace, His mercy, and forgiveness. You need to be constantly drinking in His love because it will change the way you think. It will change the way you feel, how you experience life, how you experience others, and most importantly, how you will experience God. Now, I found something out this week that was really, actually I've been working on this sermon for quite a while, so it wasn't this week, but um, 
it was really kind of cool. So I'm just going to show you, uh, if you will turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. I'm going to put it up here, but I'm going to read it. It says, but let, us who, uh, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of hope and salvation. The breastplate of love? Of what? Love and faith, right? The breastplate of faith and love. This is what is needed in the battle. Faith and love. They're essential. But now, just go back a few pages to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. Oh my goodness, this is awesome. Ephesians chapter 6. I could not believe when I found this. This is the first time I've seen this. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Wait a minute. I thought we read about the breastplate of faith and love. Ladies and gentlemen, the synonym for faith and love is righteousness. Wow. I just, I was blown away by that. This simplifies things, at least it makes it clearer for me. So when it says in Romans 3.25 that God's righteousness was manifested by faith in Jesus, then these two texts help make it more understandable. Why? Because if faith and love is righteousness, it is not imaginary or theoretical. In order for Jesus to come to earth and reveal the character of God's righteousness, He had to demonstrate and show us his faith and love. Therefore, righteousness is faith and love. So when Adam believed God, God counted his faith as what? And did Adam say anything? Did he do anything? God counted it to him. Therefore, for me, it's quite clear that faith and love are righteousness. Now, I'm going to throw a curveball at you today. Sin is not what you and I think it is. Well, wait a minute, Charlie. Isn't sin doing wrong things? Isn't sin transgressing God's law? Isn't sin being bad in terms of performance? I would counter to you today that no, that is not what sin is. These are the results of sin. And hence you have the title of my sermon. Sin is living life apart from God. Sin separates us from God. Romans 14:23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. What is another word for faith? Trust. Whatsoever is not of trust or trust in God is sin. John 16, verse 8 and 9, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will reprove the whole world of sin because they did not believe or trust in Me. And therefore, sin is not having a trusting relationship with God. When the devil first sinned in heaven, he didn't commit a traditional sin like stealing the fruit off of the heavenly tree or killing one of the angels. The devil fell because he felt big enough to live on his own steam and to separate from God. He wanted to do things his way. Therefore, there is a big difference between sin, singular, and sins, plural. Sin, singular, is living life apart from God. Sins, plural, are the consequence of this separation resulting in the bad or wrong things. So let's look at a few texts here. We'll go quickly through them. Revelation 3, verse 5, it says, He that overcomes. Overcomes what? Traditionally, we think that this means overcoming our sins. But no, the text should read, He that overcomes living their life apart from God. So no matter who you are, no matter how you are sitting in this congregation, whether you have a lot of willpower or whether your willpower is weak, through the grace and the power of God, you can be an overcomer this morning. 
God will always welcome seekers, no matter who you are. Hebrews 10.26, if we sin willfully, so now we could say it a different way. If we live life apart from God willfully, wow, you can choose not to sin. Wait a minute, Charlie. That doesn't sound, no. You can choose to live with God. You can choose not to live apart from God. That is a choice that you and I have. The only choice we have in the matter is choosing God. So we can choose not to sin, which is new to live life apart from God. James 4, 7 and 8. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. My friends, I have to tell you, in my growing up experience, I had read that text so many times and I became so discouraged for a very long time. Why? Because it is impossible to resist the devil. Absolutely impossible. In fact, it's pointless. It's useless. The, the, the text, if you read the text, it's surrounded with relationship language. Submit yourselves to God. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. So what this text could be saying is, the way you resist the devil is to submit to God. The way by which you withstand and survive the onslaughts of the devil is to draw nigh to God. Amen. Hebrews 12, 1, verse 1 through 4, I'm going to just read the first part. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Now, put your thinking cap on like you've been studying this morning. This is not talking about your cherished sin. And everyone has a different one. What is this sin? What is sin? Living your life apart from God. So we've been told to spend a thoughtful hour every day with Christ. We've been told in Luke 9.23 to die daily. We've been told that God's grace and mercies are new every morning. So, let me ask a quick survey here. I want everyone to participate, if you can. Do you believe that everything you hear on the radio? Anyone want to put their hand up? Do you believe everything you hear on talk radio? Do you believe every politician you hear? Do you read, believe everything you read on the internet? Do you believe everything you read in magazines or the newspaper? Okay, so let me ask you the big question. Do you believe in the Bible? Then why do we spend most of our time in the things that we don't believe in? And hardly any to no time in what we believe in. Do you remember the little exercise I had you write in the notebook? For those of you who participated, here's what I want you to do with it. I don't want you to do anything with it. I want you to look at it when you go home. And I want, to ask, I want you to ask yourself this question. How are you measuring up to what you've just written? Most of the surveys over the years show that 20% of Christians spend time with God daily. Revelation 3 calls this lukewarm. Matthew 23, if you want to read a blistering chapter, and it's red letter almost the whole chapter, Jesus speaks to the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you hypocrites. You go and you whine over the graves of all the people, all the prophets that, you, that, the, that the old Israel killed, and you whitewash them, and you're praying, oh Lord, if we had been living in that time, we would have never done that. And then they're going back to the synagogue trying to plot the death of Jesus. We are pretty good at pretending something that we're, we want people to believe on the outside. But on the inside, we're, we're cold. We're empty. 
The solution of Revelation 3 is several, but I'm just going to focus on one, the white garment. Revelation 19 calls that white garment the righteousness of Christ. So friends, if you are not having quality and life-changing time with God daily, you are sinning. Living life apart from God is the sin that so easily ensnares you and me. The answer is not in a dream house. The answer is not in the state house. The answer is not in the pub house. The answer is not in the clubhouse. The answer is not in the White House. Now, I have a little task. Mr. Caleb, would you come up here? You, Caleb did not know he's coming up here. This is kind of shocking for Caleb. Did your mom and dad tell you you were... No, I didn't think so. I told them not to tell you. So, Caleb, just pretend that I have the capacity to make this happen, that this is what we call a superpower button, okay? And if you can press this button, you can be strong and mighty and do everything you want and can do just anything. Would you press that button? Um. You told me you wanted to have strength, right? Yeah. Yeah, so press it. Okay, you can keep that. Thank you, thank you. I would like for Landon and Levi to come up here. Landon and Levi. Levi, Landon. I kind of asked Levi this question, but Landon, you can, you can listen in too. Levi, if I had the power to give you the ability to create anything you can in this whole world, like cute little bunnies and cute little, little, little cats and all that. Would you do it? Yes. You would? Then press the button. Both of you press the button. Oh, yes, you, okay, take it. You press the button. That'll become clear in just a moment. So now let's go to Hebrews. Thank you very much, grandchildren. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, there it is, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God." For consider him, who are we talking about? Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, bloodshed striving against sin. Wait a minute. This is talking about Jesus who resisted and strove against sin. You mean he had to do that? What does this mean? Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus use his own power to heal people? Did Jesus use his power to heal people? No. Did Jesus use his inherent power to do anything? Jesus always relied upon the power of God. Therefore, Satan was tempting Jesus to rely upon himself and his own superpower rather than relying upon God. It was upon this point in which both Jesus and you and I are tempted to rely upon our own selves and on our own power. What was the natural inclination of Caleb, Levi, and Landon? To push the button. Why? Because we want superpowers. Jesus had superpowers. He had the same power that we, that he has power that we don't have. But let me ask you, did Jesus have the same tendencies and inclinations to sin? The answer is, listen to this lawyer's answer, listen to the lawyer's answer, yes and no. 
Jesus did not have the same proclivities towards sinning that humans have in that sense. But he did have the same tendency or inclination to rely upon himself. Both Jesus and humans are tempted upon the tendency and inclination towards self-reliance instead of relying on God. If you search the scriptures, you find out exactly how sins, plural, appeared to Jesus. When you do that, you find that sins had no appeal to Jesus whatsoever. Jesus was disgusted. He was repulsed by the allurements of evil all around him in this world. Every sin, every discord, every defiling lust that transgression had brought was torture to his spirit. He had no pleasure or rejoicing in any kind of sins. Sins were abhorrent, and uh, with any kind of sinning, Jesus constantly recoiled at his presence around him. Jesus could not stand the sins, but he loved the sinner. Jesus had absolutely no interest in sinning. What? Heresy, Charlie. If he had no interest in sinning, then he didn't strive against sin. Why would you have to strive against something that was absolutely repulsive to you? When what Jesus strived for was against sin, living his life apart from his Father. The devil knew that if he could get Jesus to separate from his Father and depend on himself, then the victory and the great controversy would be his. From the cradle to the grave, Satan tempted Jesus to use his divine power that he had within him. We can't forget also that Jesus was 100% divine, but he never used his superpower. The devil tempted Jesus to depend upon his own willpower in the wilderness by turning the stones into bread. Now, here's a question. Is there anything wrong in eating when you haven't eaten for six weeks? Just answer the question. This is not a trick question. Is there anything wrong in eating when you haven't eaten for six weeks? No. He didn't even tempt Jesus to turn the stones into apple pie and ice cream. He only tempted him to do bread. Is there anything wrong with bread? I would go so far as to say that, Jesus, that Satan tempted Jesus to do something right. I missed a slide in there. Oh, no, I, I, okay, there's the pending. There. Jesus tempted, Satan tempted Jesus to do something right. I want to pause there for a second. Jesus tempted, uh, Satan tempted Jesus to do something right. Have you ever been tempted to do something right? Every day, you and I are tempted to do something right. When we wake up in the morning and we have to get out of bed, we ignore God's calling to our hearts. We roll over, we pull the blanket over, we shrug and we say, God, I think I can do right today. Thank you very much. And we roll over and shut the alarm off and don't give him the, the time of day. So if sins were so detestable to Jesus and he had no desire to sin, then how could he have been tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 says? It says, he was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. If you look back carefully, the word points is not even in the text. If you look at the original Greek, the word points is not in there. The word is ex extent. So if you rewrite it, you can say he was tempted to every extent as we are, yet without sin. May I suggest that if Jesus had to be tempted in all points as we are today, then Jesus was born 2,000 years too soon. There is no way that Jesus would be tempted in every conceivable type of sin that we face today. We have temptations that they didn't even think about in those days. Let's look at one more text, and this is the hard one. 
1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. But when you read it in the context, what it really says is whoever sins lives or living life apart from God will also transgress the law because sin results in the transgression of the law. That is what the text says. Sin is not the transgression of the law. Transgression of the law is the result of sin, which is living life apart from God. In 1999, JFK Jr. got in a plane with his wife and his wife's sister, and they were going to a wedding from New York City to Martha's Vineyard. The flight was delayed, and that flight ended up taking place at night. He took off after dark. He shouldn't have. Because JFK Jr., unlike and like, 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 like me, I didn't have my IFR rating, which, in, which means instrument flying rules. When I got stuck in that snow squall, I had no clue what I was doing because I was not instrument rated. That was a fluke, and thank the Lord he got me through it. JFK was also not IFR rated. He was only VFR, visual flying rules. Unfortunately, JFK Jr., his wife and his wife's sister, crashed seven miles from their destination, just right off the sound here in Martha's Vineyard. The NTSB determination was two words. Spatial disorientation. He had no visible landmarks. He had no visible horizon. He trusted in what he thought he was seeing. He did not trust his instrument panel and what it was telling him. I can tell you that the, mo the moment I got into that snow squall, I can remember it with chills as I, go, as I think about it today. I remember feeling like I should not be doing what I was doing when I looked at that horizon instrument. It just felt counterintuitive. I felt like I surely needed to pull this way or pull that way. But I kept my eye on that horizon because it was only by keeping my eye on the horizon that I was able to make it safely. The real sin is living life apart from God which sadly most of us experience. So then when you jump ahead two verses, it says, whoever abides in him does not sin. So if sin is not abiding in Jesus, then if I abide in him, I will not be sinning. The world interprets God's grace as God helps those who help themselves. But the truth is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Charles Spurgeon says, if any person thinks ill of you, don't be angry with them, for you are worse than they think. <laughs> we cannot be saved by our good works, because no matter how hard we try, our good is never good enough to a perfect and holy God. Let's be clear. Righteousness needs to be acceptable to God, which can only come from Christ. How is that possible? Through the cross. Paul says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider all my efforts rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, having a righteousness not of my own, but that which is through Christ, faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, which is by faith. The Lord knows you cannot cleanse your heart and nature, but he knows that he can do both. He can create you a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time and a sixth time. And he can cause you to be born again. This is a miracle of grace, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives you that grace. Self-dependence is something that we need to get rid of. There's a story in the Bible about the rich young ruler, and Jesus knew his heart, and he says, go sell everything that you have and come and follow me. Now, 
Does Jesus want you and me to sell everything we have and go follow him? No. What was wrong with this young man? He depended wholly on his riches. And Jesus says, anything that separates you from me, get rid of it. If we're reliant or depending upon that, we can also depend on our talent, our power, our personality, our education, our athleticism, our musical talent, our finances, our career, even our social status. If we're depending on ourselves, then we're not depending on God. If we have given our hearts to Jesus, we shall bring our gifts to him, our gold, our silver, and our most precious earthly possessions, along with our highest mental and spiritual endowments, will be freely devoted to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Friends, the theology of faith is really not hard. It's two texts. John 15, verse 5. Without me, you can do nothing. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. You know, I was thinking about the little superpower button that I created for Caleb and Levi and Landon. If there was a superpower button that I had on this platform this morning that says, if you press this button, you could stop sinning. How many of us would press that button? If you have room for Christ, then from this day forth, remember that you have no more room for the world in you. Psalm 118 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in humans. 1 John 2, 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And I'm going to close with this illustration. I heard it about six months ago, and I've never forgotten it. Christ was the only sinless one who ever dwelled on earth, and yet for nearly 30 years he lived among the wicked inhabitants of Nazareth. This fact is a rebuke to those who think themselves dependent upon place, fortune, or prosperity in order to live a blameless life. Temptation, poverty, and adversity is the very discipline needed to develop purity and firmness. I'm going to close with an illustration called the Wall of Faith. Have any of you heard this? The Wall of Faith? No? Good. Um, <clears throat> we know that at the very end of the millennium, in, Rome, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it talks about the holy city coming down from heaven, resting not too far from earth. And we all know the scene that's going to take place, don't we? The wicked on earth and the righteous saved in the new earth. And they'll be together all alive all at once. If you know your Bible, you know that to be true. And at that point, we also know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess together that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so some people along the way, back in the antediluvian times, will say, but God, I couldn't be saved. The world was sinned, sinning all the time, Genesis says. It was sinning without stopping. Um, Noah, would you mind coming up here? Noah, would, would you go stand on that wall of faith? But Lord, we, were, we lived around idols. We, we were taken captive. We, we had so many things against us, going against us all the time. We couldn't even survive. Everything was rough. Uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would you mind going and standing on that wall? But Lord, 4,000 years of sin and this whole world is corrupt. It's evil. It's wicked. And Jesus says, Paul, would you mind going and standing on that wall? I don't know what struggles you're going through today. I don't see her. 
I was going to use her as an example, but I won't. Whatever your difficulty is, whatever your excuses, the question I have is, will you be found on that wall of faith? Can Jesus count on you to reflect him to others around you? Charles Weigel was an evangelist songwriter, and one day he came home and he found a note from his wife. I'm leaving you, Charlie. I don't want to live life with you anymore. I don't like living this way. I want to go the other way, and I want to go see what the bright lights look like. She also took their only daughter. And that night, Charlie Weigel aimlessly wandered the streets, ending up in Biscayne Bay, Florida, contemplating suicide. Yet despite all that had happened to him, he chose to continue living his life for Jesus. A few months later, he crossed paths with his estranged wife. She mocked and told him of the sins and the joy that she was committing in life. But sadly, two years later, she lay on her deathbed. With her daughter by her bedside and remembering the better life she had lived with her husband, she said, Please tell your father to pray for me and ask him if God can forgive such a sinner as me. After she died without hope, Charlie Weigel thought about what God had brought him through. He sat down at the piano and he wrote in 20 minutes the words and the tune that you and I are going to sing right now. No one ever cared for me like Jesus.